This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, June 25th, 2022. Dornall, how was your week? Hey, Daddy Warpig. Uh, my week was pretty slow on account of my allergies going into overdrive. Uh, once again, I've spent most of it working and sleeping. Oh, that's it. That's the show. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for uh, coming in, folks. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and uh, geek-wise, uh, I've uh, been, I've still been catching up on the Expanse. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, writing really dropped off in season four, uh, but uh, there's enough good moments in each episode and uh, and cool science fiction uh, visuals that uh, that I'm gonna continue to watch it. Is season four the season where they stopped paying attention to the alien stuff and just became all about the politics? Yeah. Yeah, that season yeah. I didn't like that much. That wasn't good. Uh, they, they and also the characters because they've got, you know, they've got this broadcast of characters, and uh, because of all the, you know, drama, the the things that are happening with those characters and. And, you know, you may grow to like or care some of them, but because all of them are involved in all sorts of these different storylines, you get each set of characters gets their dramatic moments in each episode. And and often it's it's sort of like a, a sad or bittersweet or maudlin sort of scene. And they'll just string two or three of those together um, uh, between season four and season five. And in season, season five is the one where they just... Uh, decide to split the whole cast and have them all off doing different things. So instead of an A story, a B story, a C story, you've got sort of co-equal A, B, C, D stories that, uh, you know, they, they don't they don't intersect until late in the season. Um, I'm not a fan of the writing uh, in these two seasons, though uh, some of the stuff that happens, uh, like I said, it's still interesting enough. Plus there's that Amos character. He's still on the show, so. He's always awesome. I like him. He's yeah. the best part of the show. Absolutely. Uh, poorly written shows. Guess what just came out with this last episode this week? Uh, well, you, I, I can't guess. I'm going to recuse myself from this game because you told me before the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kenobi had it... Uh, it's last episode. There were only six of them come out this week, and I watched it. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So the audience is sitting there thinking, saying, verily screaming at the device of their choice. Uh, don't keep us in. Don't keep us in suspense anymore. Tell us. Tell us whether the show is worth watching. And I would say, no. I cannot give Kenobi a recommend. It is, it is not worth watching. Good. There are some okay moments in the show, and there is even some good performances by people in the show, but. It's just not 
worth six hours of your life. Yeah, yeah. Matthew Martin in the chat. Hey, what's up? He, he wants to know why you keep doing this for yourself. It's it's for the show, I guess. We do this. Yeah, it's for my you. job. I mean, I don't have to watch everything. Your Miss Marvel started this week. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. I haven't watched that. I am kind of curious. <laughs> it's like this it's it's like this weird echo where uh you know in terms of the cultural zeitgeist superheroes appear to be over but the producers don't know it yet. <laughs> mm. Um it's a it's a Disney Plus series. It's not a movie. It's a Disney Plus series, and it just started on Disney Plus, so it's going to be releasing episodes for, I don't know, six to eight weeks, whatever. But the character is dreadfully unpopular on the uh, in comics, dreadfully boring. And even though they changed all her powers to make her actually a better character, that is, by the way, the absolutely, you know, faintest of praise I can give it, they are making her slightly less garbage for the show <laughs> in terms of her power set. Because her other power set was, and, and get this, this is how exciting her powers were for the comic. Her hands inflated like balloons so she could punch people with them. Wow. That's it. And and she stretchy stretched too, right? Like a oh, like yeah, a Mr. Fantastic or Plastic stretched. Man. So yeah, not even as much as, as Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic from like 1963 was already a better Miss Marvel than Miss Marvel was. <laughs> That's absurd. Um, it is it's totally absurd. Um, and, and the story behind the character is that like Sana Aminat, I want to get the name mostly right, um, was an aide to Hillary Clinton. And under suspicious circumstances, no one's been able to fully unearth. She got a job at Marvel Comics with the avowed intent of increasing representation at the comic company, introducing new uh, minority characters and, and things like that, and representation and, and, and all of that. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. That's, that's all over all over corporate America. Um, it's all very mysterious, and no one's been able to find out exactly who her family is, but her family has ties to the Clintons and, and bundled a lot of money and is very rich. But it's all mysterious and all shrouded, and it's really hard to get information about them and all of this. And it's just really puzzling. Um, so she is a Pakistani-American. And I mean, Miss Aminah. And so she creates a comic book character who is, and wait for the punchline, Pakistani-American. 
Who? Oh wow, it's just like me. Representation matters. Um who gets transformed by the Terrigen Mists? Because this was happening during the time when Fox held the right to the X-Men and they were trying to erase the X-Men from the Marvel Universe so they could instead go with Inhumans who are a different kind of people who were uh, completely de different than X-Men, only they were exactly like mutants. Um and the Terrigen Mists had gotten spread across the planet, so a bunch of new people were popping up who were completely different than mutants, but exactly like mutants anyway. And so she became a, a character. She had the ugliest costume in the world that only had the benefit of being really easy to duplicate in cosplay. Like it was dead simple. You had like this smock and uh, tennis shoes, sneakers or, you know, high tops and leggings and uh, and some kind of head thing. I can't remember what it is. I can't picture it. I've seen it, you know, a couple dozen times. I can't picture it right now. I wasn't really preparing for, for to do this. It just occurred to me. Anyways, terribly unpopular character with a terribly lame power set that no one in the world would ever want. This isn't the kind of character people look up to and want to be. You know, people look up to Batman because Batman is badass. And you would want to be Batman. And people look up to Superman because he's got all the powers that would be awesome. He's super strong, super resilient. He can fly. People look up to like Spider-Man because he's neat. He's got neat powers. He can swing from buildings and he's a smart aleck and he's funny. And people would like to be that. Or Captain America because he's heroic and he's strong and he slings that shield around. But no one wants to have big goofy hands that puff up uh except for that psychopath who draws the blue bear um and that's for completely different reasons <laughs> holy cow that's um, the second time i've been transported to 2014 we already did that once in the green room oh who is gonna get that reference I'm gonna watch the chat. Sorry, <laughs> I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't let that reference go. All right. Um, hey, I want to. I want to jump. Too long. I, I want to. I want to jump on on. And and talk back to chat here, uh, where we're talking about superheroes will never be over. Superhero, as a genre in and of itself, is likely over. And uh, I want to address that and follow it up with uh, video. Video Miredor, I don't, I don't know. Hey, thank. You're always on the show. I have no idea how to say your username. Video Miredor, um, Video Miredor. Uh, yeah, I want to see other genres like noir, action adventures, and so on. Um, I want to express the idea that the superheroes are characters and they're part of uh, the story, but they're not the genre in and of itself. The superhero origin story might be a genre. But you can tell, you can film a noir movie using superhero characters. Uh, many 
superhero movies are or the some of the television shows are like soap operas and some of them are like action adventures and the worst ones i mean the best ones or the worst ones uh what was the uh civil war captain america civil war that was basically just um john favreau bringing out all his plastic uh superhero toys and smashing them against each other on his desk right it was just it's just let's let's have all the heroes fight each other right um which was great <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what everybody signed up to see. Um, so, so keep that in mind. Like, it's not the superheroes are 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 just done. Everybody's sick of them, and I think the superhero origin story has been done to done to death. And I don't think we need to see another one of those. Uh, but uh, we could we could tell we could have different we could have all those different stories with superheroes. And I'm saying we're done with superheroes. Uh, let's let's go back to telling these traditional types of stories with other characters. So I hope, anyway, and maybe you may think of that as a distinction without a difference, but whatever. They uh, changed uh, her powers for the show because she had really lame powers, and now she has apparently. And and I'm saying this, you know, from what I've seen in the trailer, she actually has not lame powers. So uh, they made the character better. I'm... Who knew? Um, but hey, we have a perfect hook to get our guest in. Oh, so Kenobi, bad. Don't see it. Don't waste six hours of your life. I'm not recommending going and seeing Miss Marvel because I haven't watched it. And I don't know. Anyways, our, our guest. Uh, what, yeah, what's what's the segue? Our guest is a superhero. Our guest is no. A... Our guest just did a Kickstarter, both for a superhero role playing game, and for a comic, a graphic novel set in the same superhero universe, um, which I have. That's right. I did. Alexander McCreese. We had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who told me how to pronounce it. Otherwise, I would have. Just completely not. It rhymes with peace, not with piss. There you have it. Um, that's, the, that's in my notes now, show notes. And I believe <laughs> it's called the Ascendant Universe. That's right. Ascendant Universe. And the graphic novel is Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron. So uh, you see the... You see the... Uh, the segue there, John, is is from superhero I, to superheroes. Uh, yeah, I, I picked it up. I, I picked it up on that. Yeah, yeah John, it's I hope you're wrong that superheroes are over because I just launched a superhero brand. Um, that said, it's definitely more of a reconstruction of superheroes um, with more classical tales. So to the extent that what has turned people off about contemporary superhero storytelling is the subversion of the tropes that they like. Hopefully, they will find um, that Ascendant doesn't subvert their expectations. It meets and exceeds their expectations. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm going to share the Kickstarter right now for everybody watching on YouTube. Uh, uh, so this was completed. Yes, uh, yes. This was complete. This was last year's Kickstarter for the game, and earlier this year was the kick was a was an Indiegogo for the graphic novel. I think there's no. Uh, 
maybe maybe the cultural zeitgeist superheroes are waning, but in gaming, uh, they're one of the things that can't be beat. Uh, between that and fantasy, uh, high fantasy, those are the two big uh, games. And uh, if you've listened to me long enough uh, on the podcast, I feel the same way about uh, the current iteration of the Dragon game, uh, which is simply a superhero game with uh, fantasy trappings, uh, with a a shallow veneer of uh, early 2000s Seattle on it. Uh, superheroes are a great uh, vehicle for tabletop gaming. So, uh, so Daddy Warpig, uh, you said you got these. Uh, I got the comic. I uh, uh, I could not buy into the uh, Ascendant role playing game when it was live. Uh, I was poor and could not afford it. Mm, yeah. It's definitely been a uh, difficult fundraising environment because of the economy being in the shitter. I've had a lot of backers have reached me and said, you know, I'm going to support, but I can't do as big as I did in 2018 or 2017. Uh, so I think it's a lot of, a lot of hard times, but thank you for uh, jumping in on the graphic novel. There's going to be another um, crowdfunding campaign for ascendant rogues gallery, either later this year or early next year which is going to be a supplement for Ascendant filled with um, dozens of new characters and templates and things like that. We've also got a, an adventure series called the Capital City Case Files coming out, which is going to be um, a whole set of one-off uh, campaign games that you can play set in our fictional Capital City, Delaware, uh, designed for you know X-Man uh, level superheroes, you know, city level Spider-Man superheroes. And... Um, and then there's going to be uh, sequels to the graphic novel as well. So it's a it's a big push for me. So I, I'm, I'm really counting on John being wrong on this. And superheroes are about to have the new dog, hopefully, maybe. Uh, well, I've never been wrong before. So Ooh. Uh, about right. anything, about anything. So we're in. Uh... That's troublesome. That's troublesome. Uh, all right. Well, so we're going to have to we're going to have to work against my no, in, in all seriousness. Uh, well, this is something that is sort of uh, this. This is uh, this was a surprise to me uh, because I I only uh, obliquely followed some of the stuff you've put out. Um, I'm I'm definitely a person that stopped buying a lot of role playing stuff uh, years and years ago, uh, and you sort of, from my perspective, you made your bones with Adventure Conquer King system, right? Uh, so I was surprised to find out that you were launching a superhero game, and uh, and I haven't I haven't checked it out yet because actually I don't I don't play superhero role playing games. Mm. Uh, I should probably I should probably change that, but there are only so many hours in a week. Uh, it's true. It's true. So when I was working on Axe, I I ended up kind of evolving into this niche where people really liked the level of detailed simulation I put into politics, economics, world building, uh, the environment, etc. And so I had this notion of could I take simulational game design to the next level and create a physics-based superhero RPG using logarithmic math. And I didn't really expect it to be um, as popular as it was. It ended up being number one on Drive to RPG, and it sat on the charts for three months, you know, outsold um, Axe, uh, and quite surprised me. 
And I'm, I'm still not sure if it's because people just really like the art and the vibe, or if it's because the market for crunchy games is bigger than people think it is. And um, we're misled by the indie movement and rules lightness, and there's actually an untapped audience for crunch. So we'll find out more when I when I release um, Rogue's Gallery and some other stuff like that. So. Oh, cool. I, I should definitely take a closer look. And yeah, I think you're right. I think there's, uh, well, there's two things. Like there is a little bit of appetite for a little more crunch in the games uh, because there's a lot of people who do play the rules light and that sort of thing. And after after a few hours of rules light gaming, uh, it's it's all empty calories. It yeah. doesn't feel like you doesn't feel like you're playing a game. Uh, it can be a great diversion. I agree with you. I agree with you. In fact, I, in my book, Arbiter of Worlds, I make a comment that a rules-like game is a game that just hasn't been played enough. Because any rules-like game that's played in a long-term campaign ends up becoming rules-heavy. It, it's exactly what happened to original Dungeons & Dragons. I can give a big recommend uh, to that. I have read Arbiter of Worlds. Uh, I thought that was a, a, nice, a, a nice introduction to the way that you understand role-playing games and tabletop role-playing games and uh, for for a lot of people and it does apply to a lot of people in that sort of osr old school milieu um and so i thought that was really fascinating is it, it do you have a do you have a one-line summary of of what your thoughts on what tabletop gaming is one line i think tabletop role-playing games should be focused on giving players agency through their characters in a world in motion. Mm. I'm going to clip that later. Thank you. Yeah. And that's very much at odds with the contemporary philosophy that role tabletop role-playing games are about making stories with friends. And I, I think there's a place for story games, I just think they're a different genre than tabletop role-playing games. So, yeah, I I think I've I've played with uh, just a couple of personal anecdotes. I've played with people where if you play with a group of friends and there's a very high level of trust that you can go outside the rule system, make something up, you know, and, and the game master will get a twinkle in his eye and say, okay, let's run with that, right? And that's how story games develop. Uh, and that can be very fun and rewarding. But <clears throat> I've also had the task lately. I've been investigating what modern games have to offer uh, in considering both, uh, in two scenarios, it, considering starting a new game myself, uh, learning a new game and, and playing it, um, something like Adventure Conqueror King or just go to an old game that I've never played before. Um, as well as the uh, research into an upcoming role-playing game, uh, doing playtesting for that and doing market research or, or competitor research on, okay, what do other games in this style do? And uh, what can I say? They're all the same. That all the games have a global universal resolution mechanic mm -hmm. 
and they all say the same thing in the what is a role-playing game section. They all say roughly the same thing in the character creation section and how to play section and that sort of thing. There are almost no rules for the game master. The game master's told to just make it all up. Mm -hmm. Like you, you do all the work. We just copy pasted the tried and true universal mechanic system that we've been using since GURPS, mm -hmm. uh, only slightly modified. And uh, you can tell they're just there to sell the paper, or you know they're just there to sell the books, right? There's there's no meat in there for anybody who's ever played before. Um, which I can't speak I can't speak for Ascendant, uh, but I can speak for Axe. Axe, uh, there's plenty of meat there. And you started with a, you started with uh, Beckme. You started with uh, as a sort of a. Mm -hmm starting place so you actually had a you had some bones to build on top of but like there's a game there oh um, for sure for sure um yeah my games are very meaty i would say um ascendant has uh you know ascendant is a 496 page rule book and um it uses a very carefully built mathematical model that lets you simulate virtually anything so it has rules for volcanoes it has rules for fighting disease pandemics investigating crime scenes, talking to witnesses, stopping a tsunami, diverting an asteroid, like almost anything you can think of that a superhero could do, we have mechanics for. Um, and it uses a universal resolution system, um, which is which is very simple. Um, but because of that, uh, it's able to be really modular with all sorts of plug and play powers that can all sort of interact seamlessly. So if my electrical control creates an electrical field, we'll be able to determine how much damage that can do to the building, which then when it falls on you, we can work out how much damage it does to you from the collapse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's a, I would say I've, I've taken simulation design about as far as I can take it in a tabletop setting with Ascendant um, and still manage to maintain speed of play, which is important to me. Oh, absolutely fascinating. We should probably move on to the to the new stuff, but... Uh, that that gives me hope for someone who really wants uh, to be able to tell a variety of superhero stories uh, without having them all feel samey. Right. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, speaking of acts, uh, tell us about your new stuff. Oh, yeah. All right. So the new book is called By This Axe, The Cyclopedia of Dwarven Civilization. It's a 200-page tome, and it's entirely devoted to dwarves. Um, now, Adventure Conquer King System is based on uh, BECMI and BX Dungeons and Dragons, and so um, it uses race as class. So, in the original um, Molde Cook um, Red Box, dwarf was a character class. What we decided to do when we created Axe was we said that rather than have each race be one character class, each race would have its own unique set of character classes that represented the archetypes of that race. So you mm -hmm. have human fighter, human mage, human thief, human cleric. You have dwarf vault guard, dwarf craft priest, elven spell sword, elven enchanter, etc. And mm -hmm. so that enabled us to give people a choice of um, Different, different sort of uh, character classes they might like to play, but it avoided the problem where everyone just picks their race in order to min-max their character class. And, you know, so for instance, in fifth edition D&D, &D, oh, make sure your mage is a mountain dwarf so he can get armor or things like that. 
um, which I've always detested. And um, now, you know, contemporary fifth edition has moved in the direction of really de-emphasizing race um, and treating it more as a cosmetic choice. Um, in By the Sacks, we've really doubled down and we've said dwarves are a separate species. They're like fantasy Wookiees. And as such, they have their own physiology, they have their own psychology, they have their own demography, and it's different than human beings. And because it's different, their culture is different in the same way that lions are, pri are, are group hunters and jaguars are individual hunters because their biology is different. So, um, so that's let us really do an interesting deep dive into what dwarven civilization might be like. Um, and then having then built out what dwarven civilization is like in the first third of the book, the rest of the book is then game mechanics that um, bring the civilization to life. Special character classes, uh, rules for dwarven mushroom farming, rules for dwarven uh, beer brewing with special brews, rules for dwarven mining, delving too deep, what happens if you if you delve into the uh, underdark and, and the elemental planes of fire beneath the earth, um, dwarven automatons, so what if you want to build steampunk machinery with your dwarf, and that's all in the book, and it creates this kind of fascinating um, fascinating culture, which I think really will resonate with anyone who likes dwarves, um, and also offer, I think, a lot of new things that people haven't really thought about, like, oh, I get it now, this is everything I ever wanted to know about dwarves that I didn't even know I needed to know. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty niche, but it's my niche. Uh, DW, what's my favorite fantasy race? Um, gnomes. It's dwarf. It's dwarf. <laughs> I think dwarf is a lot of people's favorite fantasy race. Um, you know, I think I think they're easy to empathize with, right? Like they they've got it tough. They have to work hard. You know, the vaults are constantly under siege by the bad guys. Um, they, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they labor, they create, they create beautiful things. They're kind of grumpy because life is hard. Like, you know, I think your typical, I think your typical uh, middle-aged old school gamer um, can empathize with that a lot more than with like, I'm an eternally beautiful elf whose life is perfect and I will never age. And my name is Nathaniel Silverleaf. You're like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to kill you with my bad lax. This is not a pro elf stream. So, um, now that said, I like elves too, but for this particular book, um, you know, we're focusing on dwarves and, and having a good time with it. I should add all of the, um, all of the fluff, the, the, the lore is all written in character. So I created this character called Circanius of Cipheron, who's a sage, um, who has been, who's been given the first ever opportunity to live among the dwarves as a, as a dwarologist and and write um write up the lore of dwarves so he's the creator of the field of dwarology which is to dwarves as anthropology is to humans and so um everything about the dwarves is being written from his point of view and he's very much um written as a kind of um as like a cross between herodotus and a victorian anthropologist from the british empire so he's sort of very snooty about his own way of doing things, but he thinks of himself as like a very objective and rational person who's telling you how it is. And so um, there's a lot of sections in the book that are very tongue in cheek. And it also gives the judge, the game master, a lot of opportunity to decide like, you know, in my world, this is not how it is. And Circanius was wrong, or he was tricked, or he, you know, he misunderstood the traditions. Um, 
And so it, it gives you a lot of flexibility as a, as a GM to decide how dwarves really are versus how this guy perceived dwarves to be. Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good middle road. Uh, it recalls the old splat books of AD and D second edition. They had they had one dedicated to dwarves, one de dedicated to elves. And, yep. uh, and it, it, they, they didn't do that. And it was very, uh, dry, boring, even. Right. That's right. Yeah. I would say this book is not boring. It's, um, it's probably the funniest book I've ever written. I always include lots of little dry humor in my rule books. Um, that's easy to miss if you're just kind of skimming them. Um, I think there's, there's a few sections in, in Circanius that have been laugh out loud funny when people have read them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, what I ended up doing is I made a list of all the tropes of dwarves and um, and I essentially reverse engineered dwarven civilization from the tropes of dwarves. So, you know, we know why dwarven women are rare. Why is that? You know, dwarves are grumpy. Why is that? Et cetera, et cetera. Dwarves have big bellies. Why is that? And then I kind of answered all those questions. So so at this point, I'm the world's leading expert in dwarves. Uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, we'll get you an honorary uh, degree at Cornell for for your dedicated uh, research. Absolutely, a PhD in dwarology for sure. Dwarology. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's that's really cool. I love that as a concept, not just because I I really enjoy the race, but uh, it's it's like you alluded to before that uh, fantasy races are like let's face it, they're just humans in funny suits, and uh, if you go the the ADD second edition route and you do a little bo uh, a really boring like, here's the way this funny suit w looks and talks and acts right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you're then you're just been given a bunch of you know, a set of of acting instructions. So uh, so um, it sounds like you've thought about that, but I'm going to challenge you here since I haven't uh, read the book yet. How does your approach uh, avoid that sort of trap? Sure, sure, okay. So, um, so the first thing the book says is that, uh, like elves, dwarves have a long lifespan. Um, but like humans, they age and they actually age to elderly age at approximately the same rate as humans. And then they just stay alive. And so, um, a human will spend five or 10 years as an old person and pass away. A dwarf spends half his life as a grumpy old person. And so right from the get go, you have a society that is populated by the elderly. And what do we know always and everywhere about the elderly is they're more traditional, they're less open to change, they're more rigid, etc. Okay, so that's one. Two, um, for every three children born of the dwarves, only one is a woman. So there's two male dwarves for every female dwarf. And so um, instantly and immediately, they have a problem. They then have a second problem, which I explain, which is that um, bearing dwarven children is very taxing on the women and they need many years between being able to give children. They're not like humans who can have a new child every year to two years. So uh, a dwarven woman who spends her whole life doing nothing but reproduction can have at most four or five children, which makes it very hard for them to repopulate their race if they suffer heavy casualties, um, and it also means means that women are all, always very scarce, which is why they're rarely seen in the outside world. Um, it also means that you have a lot of dwarves, dwarven men who have no access to family life 
um, which is why they create warrior brotherhoods and craft guilds and all these fraternal organizations that provide support that they otherwise, um, you know, lack for, for lack of um, uh, opportunities of what we would consider traditional family life. Um, and so uh, just starting from those three things, you can immediately see that this society is going to be totally different than human society. Um, it's going to be uh, dominated by um, older people. It's going to be uh, have a huge number of fraternal organizations for um, lifeless men. Uh, it's going to have different roles for women who are much more precious uh, in their society than they are in our society. Um, so then uh, I also say that um, the dwarves, unlike humans, don't have direct access to divine magic. Um, they have to get their divine magic through an intermediary of their ancestors. And so um, unlike humans who can simply, you know, traipse around everywhere and call on the gods, the dwarves need access to the relics and, and venerable spirits of their ancestors, which uh, focuses them on um, maintaining uh, the memory of the fallen. It requires them to maintain reliquaries, uh, defend their locations, etc. The fact that they have constant manpower requirements, uh, manpower shortages, explains why they're more industrially developed than the other civilizations. Um, the manpower scarcity is what causes them to be more of a steampunk race than uh, the rest of the world. The fact that they're more um, physiologically robust is why they're able to have industry uh, when the rest of the world cannot, and why they're able to be better miners, because the methods of um, mining and industry are exceptionally toxic and pollutant. The equivalent of you know black lung would kill off humans who tried to replicate what the dwarves do, but the dwarves are able to do it. And so I'm able to justify uh, from the basis of who dwarves are as a people, um, why dwarven civilization is the way it is. And so they're very much not like, oh, ha ha, they're just, you know, Scottish dwarves in kilts, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, nor are they, oh, arbitrarily, they have technology and that's just because they're dwarves and that's cool. It's, it's very, very, very grounded. And it's written in a way, and, and, and I gather this from the Kickstarter, but this isn't an axe source book. It's an axe source book, but it's not an Adventure Conqueror King system axe source book. Um, I mean, it is and it isn't. It's built using axe. Um, it's fully compatible with axe. But what I made sure to do was include a whole section in the rules on how to use it with any other old school game you'd like to use. And anytime there's a mechanic that's unique to axe that other games don't have, I'll put a little designer's note and say, hey, if you're playing this with old school essentials, here's how you'd want to handle this. So for instance, um, you know, in, uh, in Axe, when your character passes away um, to zero hit points, you're not dead. Instead, you roll on the mortal wounds table. Well, there's no mortal wounds table in old school essentials. So how should you handle a power that gives your character a reroll on the mortal wounds table? So, uh, mm -hmm. so I, I make sure to explain how to do that. You know. Or there's no cleaves in Labyrinth Lord. So how should you handle a character whose power is he gets extra cleaves? That kind of thing. Got it, got it. And and what what are the game systems that you considered? Uh, in terms of compatibility? Yeah. Um, I think the ones that are most compatible are the ones that descend from the um, basic expert framework. So that would be old school essentials, Labyrinth Lord, um, basic fantasy, and... Um, Lamentations of the Flame Princess. I think you could also use it with um, something like Osric or other uh, AD&D based, but since they don't use racist class, I had to 
give some explanations of how you would how you would handle that. And what I suggest basically is that you would treat the classes in the game as new classes that are only available to the dwarven race. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you really did your homework uh, as far as that goes. I tried. Oh. I tried. No, I, I don't think anyone could accuse me of not being meticulous about my game design. Yeah, I'm starting to pick that up. Um, so how do you? Uh, this is this is great info, and and this book uh, is is, I mean, it's it's right in my wheelhouse, uh, of course, because I love the dwarves. But uh, what 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 brought you here? What made you dig into just the dwarves? Because I don't remember you saying, you know, what was what was the motivation here? Oh sure. So what happened was um, I have a Patreon where every month I do updates and I talk to my backers. What would you guys be interested in seeing, etc. And um, I did an update on Dwarven automatons that was very well received. Um, and then a little bit later, I did an update on um, ancient mining practices, mining and querying. And it was really focused on um, mining as it was practiced by the ancient Romans and Greeks, so historical mining. But my backers were like, hey, man, you should really expand that to get into a little bit of fantasy mining, you know, with rules for dwarves. So then I, I wrote that. Um, and then a little bit later, someone was like, hey, now that you have mining, you practically could do dwarf fortress. You just need mushroom farming rules. Well, I already had farming rules written for acts for wheat farming and grain farming. And I had livestock rules and pastoralism. So I was like, why not do mushroom farming? So I bought some books on real world mushroom farming and taught myself that. And then I wrote rules for dwarven mushroom farming. And, um, and then I all of a sudden looked over all these articles I've written and I said, gosh, you know, I could pull these together into a coherent um, book and, and, and make a whole supplement out of it. Um, but I would really need to, I would really need to delve deeply <laughs> into um, what motivates it all, like why are dwarves this way? And so then I kind of um, came up with this crazed idea of dwarology and I invented this character and um, and I just sort of sat down and started channeling this guy who's you know pretending who's living among the dwarves, and it turned out to be a really fun exercise. And I kind of fell in love with the concept and made the book. <laughs> that does sound like a lot of fun. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna point out I'm gonna re remind everybody that this is on Kickstarter uh, under Projects Autark. Is that how you pronounce the company? Autark. Yes, Autark. Autark, yeah. Uh, and tell us more about the campaign. Like, uh, what sort of formats are we going to get the book in and everything? All right, so this campaign is 100% focused on offering uh, a stitch-bound hardcover with offset printing. Um, everyone has had, you know, everyone's done print-on-demand, and the quality is never quite as good. So I really wanted to offer a really beautiful book. Um, there's a high level tier, which not very many people have taken, but we've gotten about five or six um, where you can actually get a leather bound uh, hardback with, you know, made with real leather with gold embossing on the cover. That's going to be a fantastic collector's item for the handful of people who afford it. The vast majority of people are purchasing um, the stitch bound hardcover. Once the book has been crowdfunded and released at that point, I'll also go and I'll add it on drive through RPG and, um, and uh, in both, you know, print. Uh, sorry, in both digital and PDF. But for now, the campaign is all about um, getting a, getting a really nice version of an offset stitch-bound hardcover. Uh, that's great. It, it, do you offer do you offer the Adventure Conquer King system in one of those? Because 
I've got the I've got the print on demand and and the the content is great, but it looks like every other print on demand book. You know what I mean? Uh, so unfortunately, the Adventure of Conqueror King rulebook is out of print. Both the first printing and second printing completely sold out. Um, so at a certain point, I need to do a do a new printing. I've held off on doing that because I thought rather than just do uh, another printing, perhaps it would be time to do an you know. Adventure Conqueror King Imperial Edition and add in mm. some of the, some of the material that I've created on on Patreon and whatnot. Um, it wouldn't really be a, a second edition um, in the sense that you know fifth edition was totally different from fourth edition. It would be more like more like the difference, more like how um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons codified uh, OD and D when you know when OD and D had the Greyhawk, Blackmore, and um, Eldritch Wizardry supplements. And it kind of becomes sprawling, and then they codified it all into Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. That's kind of what I'm thinking I'd like to do. So, keep or GURPS, GURPS third edition revised when they added into the main rule book all the uh, stuff they had created for, you know, all of the other specific books that should be universal, really, and uh, meant for all the campaigns. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. GURPS 3rd edition revised is a really good example. So at some point, um, I might do that and do a new printing of Acts, um, but we'll see. Uh, well, cool. I, I love that you're committed to producing a real Stitchbound book. That'll be, and it, never mind the leatherback, just having that would be a treat uh, after the you know small stack of print-on-demand books I've gotten recently. Uh, absolutely love it. And... I am a big fan of this cover art uh, that I you can see a little bit on the screen if you're watching on YouTube, um, and that's been for of all the of all the authors, uh, gaming and not of all the authors that I've spoken to, uh, getting art and sourcing it and purchasing it has been one of the biggest challenges for creating these books. So where did you get this wonderful cover and 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 what kind of art? should we expect in this book? So uh, for about the past four years, I've been working with a really talented artist um, named Michael Siragos. Michael is very much um, a reincarnation of Frank Frazetta. And he is just really able to bring these images that are somehow simultaneously hyper-realistic, um, you know, humans, in their ideal anatomy doing heroic deeds, yet at the same time, kind of this phantasmagorical, um, uh, uh, almost like dreamlike air to them at, at the same time, which is really impressive. And you know, as I said, Frank Frazetta could do that and not too many people, other, other people do. So he did the cover for um, By This Axe. He did the cover for um, uh, several of my other books as well, Heroic Fantasy Handbook, Secrets of the Nether City, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he does. Uh, go ahead. I was just. Uh, um, I don't want to switch the focus away from the dwarf book yet, but uh, I wanted to ask a question about Axe uh, itself. Not by this Axe, but Axe. Um, if we're running out of questions for by this Axe. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Um, why did you base Axe on BECMI instead of, say, 
uh, AD&D or second edition or OD&D or one of the other, um, uh, one of the other, you know. Yeah, OD&D. sure. Great question. So the honest answer is because when I grew up, I played Red Box Dungeons and Dragons, and then I played second edition Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, I never really played first edition AD&D. And when I thought I had played first edition AD&D, uh, I actually hadn't. Um, I was actually playing Redbox, and we just really didn't even understand the rules of AD&D first edition at all, and <laughs> totally mangled it. Um, so when in 2008 I decided to start my own uh, old school game, I I went back to Redbox and I started with Redbox, um, and then I added in stuff that I found in the various gazetteers and in the companion set and whatnot, and I started to develop um, a whole uh, series of um, house rules, and it just kind of grew into Adventure or Conqueror King. Um, now, I think it was fortuitous because there were some, there were certain assumptions that uh, were made in Redbox that were different than the assumptions made in AD&D that ended up um, really working well for what I was trying to do. And what that is is that the game ended at 14th level and it um and spells didn't go higher than six levels and so characters always stayed um human they never quite became fully superhuman in the way that they did like an 18th level magic user does in AD&D or a 20th level paladin or something um and that became really important for acts because um there's no point in building an army and an empire if your character can destroy an army or an empire single-handedly um, you know, in order for armies and empires and mass combat to matter, the humans need, still need to be at human scale. Uh, they can be powerful, they can be heroic, you know, they can be Achilles, but they can't be Superman. Um, and so by uh, fortuitously stumbling on this sort of 14th level, first to sixth level spell system, um, that made it really much more possible to do this adventurer to king um, schema that I wanted to create. Um, I've noticed when, uh, looking at your games and I, I actually own, I think all of Axe in PDF, um, and I haven't had a chance to read as much as what, as I would like, because as everyone hears probably way too much of, I'm deluged with work, um, I uh, I have noticed though that there is a lot of uh, details and research that go uh, into your games, and then you know I get the same sense from Ascendant when you're talking about um, the mathematical model and stuff. How much uh, how much of your work on the games would you say is spent on researching? you know, uh, trade routes and um, agricultural production on the land and uh, commodities trade and things like that? Oh, gosh, uh, enormous amount. Um, I would say 50% probably of the workload is research, um, which is, you know, why I, I probably produce games at a slower rate than I otherwise might. Um, you know, I read 
multiple scholarly papers and books on Roman mining to write the mining rules. Um, you know, I read multiple books on mushroom farming to write the mushroom farming rules. Um, you know, the research I did for Ascendant was really crazy. I've got stacks of physics papers and mathematical equations and spreadsheets and, you know, naval ballistics formulas and, you know, armor, armor thickness formulas and just crazy stuff. Um, and it's, it's, it, it, it goes back to my underlying philosophy of game design, um, which is uh, I want players to be able to experience agency in a world in motion. So in order to experience agency, um, what you do each time you do it has to make sense. Um, for instance, if let's say Bob and Jim are running up to a chasm to jump across, and when Bob gets to the chasm, um, the GM says, okay, make a dex check. And he makes a deck check. And then Jim runs up and the GM says, okay, make a strength check. And he's like, well, why was it a dex check 30 seconds ago? Well, because I said so, I'm the GM and that's my ruling. You can play a game like that, but at that point, Jim can't make rational decisions about what his character ought to do. The world is capricious, it's arbitrary. That's the world of you know our ancient nightmares where capricious gods changed reality on a whim and humans were subject to the whims of fate. Um, for a player to have agency, he needs to be able to make informed choices in the world. And uh, in order to be able to make informed choices, you need to have reliable mechanics. And in order to have reliable mechanics, you need to have um, you know, a coherent uh, simulation. And the most coherent simulation we know of is the real world, obviously. So I try and pattern as much as I can off the real world. I'm I'm curious about that process, and maybe we'll have we could dedicate a whole show to that. But I understand doing research, but how do you arrive at the research that you look at? And what I mean is, you want to look up, you want to figure out how mining worked back in the Roman Empire, but how do you focus that research? What questions are you trying to answer? Like, do you know ahead of time, okay, I need a mechanic to model X, Y, and Z. Like, I want I, I, I want this result. Like, I want to generate this kind of game structure. Do you begin from from that sort of top-down view? Or or I'm just, I'm trying to create a mental model of oh, sure. how you actually put that research to use. So what I do is I usually start um, with... Uh, what in the modern day would be called an operational research formula. So um, it's uh, a formula that tells you the um, process by which some action occurs and all the variables that affect it. So for instance, um, let's say you're discussing farming and you need to know um, how much land uh, does a farmer have? Uh, how much land can a farmer cultivate? How much seed does he need? How much seed does he reap based on what he sows? How long does it take him to reap it? Um, what is the price of the wheat that he yields? What is the price of labor that he needs to hire? Okay, so you, you make a list of these variables. And then I typically just you know make some estimates early on. Uh, and then I go looking in the scholarly literature for data to uh, reinforce or um, refine or frankly change uh, my estimates. And um, for, 
for a long time, historians didn't really do that kind of thing. You know, they only did political history based on, um, you know, deeds of kings and things like that. Um, but in recent years, let's say the last 50 years, historians have really begun to explore the overlap of archaeology and um, economic activity uh, of uh, ancient peoples. And so there's an abundance of literature out there. What's fascinating is that no one's really put it together. So you can find um, scholarly articles on uh, the earnings from glassmaking, and you can find scholarly articles on the Edict of Diocletian, and you can find scholarly articles on the price of ivory. Um, but what you tend not to see is no one has actually made a functioning model academically um, that takes into account that the Edict of Diocletian is wrong on its ivory and glass prices because of this other findings we found. Um, and so uh, basically what I've been doing with Axe is, is building a model of ancient economics that's coherent um, from all this research. And so I, I now have a fully, um, a full circular flow of the ancient world, um, you know, down to, uh, you know, every, every family in my, in my fantasy are an empire, you know, are they, a, are they a lumberjack? Are they a, a goat farmer? Are they a shepherd? Are they an urban laborer? Are they a crafter, et cetera? Um, and I have I have a full model running in Excel, which is really cool. And so I can now build on that. And, you know, that took several years to create. But now that I've got it, it's awesome. That's I, I don't have a good word for that, but I understand it. Uh, thanks for the insight into how you actually do your stuff. Uh, so obvious, obvious question, and maybe to ask it is to answer it. But um, you said a couple times, and in, 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 in this description, you are clearly a fully simulationist type of gamer. Uh, is there any point at which you, uh, in the development, where you change the game mechanics from what you what you believe to be the correct simulation to something that's more gamey, more do you ever find yourself in that situation uh, where the, the the simulation doesn't generate interesting play or interesting decisions, so you need to, you know, gamify it? Um, yeah, sure. So one thing that's really important to understand when you're doing the simulation process is that if you change one variable or ignore one variable, um, you can think you're creating a simulation and actually you've just created a mess. And I'm going to give an example from Star Wars Galaxies. So in Star Wars Galaxies, when it first launched um, in Rathcoster's original version of the game, um, you could be a, an, a beast trainer and you could go out and uh, into, into Tatooine, you could find a Rancor, you could tame the Rancor and make it your pet. And in the original version of the game, the Rancor then followed you around and if it got killed, it was dead. And so as a result, having a Rancor was really, really powerful. It was hard to get, and you know you didn't want it to die. You were very upset if it died. Well, players complain, that's not fun. I don't want to have to you know, lose my Rancor because I want to go into a cantina. I don't want my Rancor to die from a random encounter. That's not fun. So they changed the game. So now you can press a button to unsummon your Rancor, and he just vanished. Um, and if your Rancor died, rather than be killed, he was just wounded, and you could bring him back later. Well, mm -hmm. so then what happened? In their, in their PvP component of the game, where it was, you know, ADATs and uh, stormtroopers versus heroes and things, in that PvP component of the game, 
Well, all of a sudden, rancors were the most dominant um, uh, weapon in the galaxy. And of course they were, because you could summon them out of nowhere. And if they died, they came back to life. So like, what would you rather have, an Adat or like a Pokemon Rancor that's immortal? Obviously, you want the Rancor. And so um, because they didn't, because they decided not to simulate um, that aspect of Rancors, their mortality and the difficulty of transporting Rancors around intergalactically, because they decided not to simulate that, then if you accurately present the power of Rancors, then they become too powerful. And so they had to nerf Rancors and make them weaker in PvP. So when you're designing a game with a simulation focus, you have to be really careful that you're simulating the constraints on things as well as the benefits on things. And if you decide some constraints aren't worth simulating, then you do have to weaken um, the, uh, the advantages um, if you want to have a uh, realistic outcome. So for instance, um, in my game, Domains at War, we don't simulate the fatigue of um, archers getting tired from pulling 100-pound longbows, right? We just don't simulate it. You just you do not sit down and measure. You have 10,000 archers, and you're you're just not measuring how tired they are from pulling all of their arrows. So, but because we don't simulate that, then it's like, well, if you allow them to have their their rate of fire when fresh for the whole battle, it would be absurd. They would massacre everything, and you have machine guns. So instead, what we do is we just reduce the rate of fire to an average for the whole battle. It's not strictly realistic. We're not fully being simulated, but we have to make that change for the sake of the game. So there's a lot of that that goes on in game design. And I think the difference between a good simulational designer and a bad simulational designer is knowing um, how granular to get with your simulation and then where to abstract when necessary. Good take. Makes sense. Okay, we are on the cusp of running out of time. We have used all of our time wisely. We even got into game design discussion. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Daddy Warpig, do you have any last questions? Uh, not that wouldn't take us to like 20 minutes over time, no. <laughs> we'll save it for another day. Uh, so... Uh, Alex, your turn. Last thoughts or questions or anything? Uh, I would just say thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, if you've been listening and my philosophy of game design uh, sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll check out my projects. Adventure Conquer King is on DriveThruRPG. Buy This Axe is currently on Kickstarter. If my philosophy of game design sounds terrible to you, um, then you should disregard everything I said and check out my products anyway. And thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's it's been great talking to you. So glad to have you on, and uh, uh, we always love talking RPGs here. We always talking love talking to creators and game designers, uh, and I hope everybody listening live uh, got a good chance to figure out what you're about, and they go check that out on Kickstarter. Link to the Kickstarter is going to be in the show notes. Uh, I'll make sure after the show, I'll make sure that uh, some of your other works are linked in the show notes on YouTube. Uh, special thanks to everybody in chat. Uh, we've got a lot of OSR fans, a lot of bro OSR fans, lots of uh, really great, great guys, good questions. Uh, and you probably picked up one or two more backers while we were here. Um, but that's it for me today. I hope everybody had a great time because I did. Daddy Warpig? Um, yeah, I do want to uh, thank our guests for coming on the show. Um, 
And I want to thank everybody who uh, listened live and participated in the chat. Remember, folks, you too can listen live. We do this show 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, just about every Saturday. You can catch us on youtube.com slash geekgab. That's youtube.com slash geekgab. We are, oh, and you can also get us on soundcloud.com, Google Play Store, and on the iTunes Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab. You can uh, listen to us on the device of your choice on the web or download us to your computer. We are signing out for today, folks, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.